This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Confident Retirement Podcast. Is doing the most important things alone a good idea? How comfy are you with your choices when it comes to life's biggest decisions? What is real peace of mind with financial confidence and how can you get it? Chris Fleming and Mark Peachy are the founders of LPF Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors. Hey, I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast. I am your host, Chris Flaming. And today I have the honor of welcoming Wendy Meadows to the podcast. Her self-named family law practice serves clients across Maryland. Wendy is a compassionate, results-oriented advocate helping clients navigate some of life's most difficult decisions. She is also a skilled mediator and a collaborative law attorney with a special focus on life after divorce. There is life after divorce. Wendy, thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay, let's jump in. We're going to have some fun. So you have kind of an interesting background. Why don't you take me through how you got where you are today? And what part? Is being a lawyer or being a solo practitioner? Yes, yes. Or either. It's free free to go whatever direction you want. Awesome. Awesome. So I went to law school with sort of a reason, a real reason and sort of, I'll tell you the real reason that I really haven't talked about it. Literally, I was an English major. I wasn't. I was an English major, and but I did not want to be a teacher. I started off as pre-med, like you know, the rest of my college did as well, and did not want to take organic chemistry, like mm-hmm. most of my college. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to do with this degree? And I remember the day, the morning, very clearly. I woke up one morning and I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to go to law school, and I'm going to go to American University. And from that point forward, I did everything I needed to do to go to American University. I got in, thank goodness, you know, and and become an attorney. And if I had to think really like, okay, well, Wendy, what caused you to make that decision other than just waking up one day? Um, mm-hmm. so I'm a child of divorce. Mm-hmm. And I really think I wanted to figure out a way to help other kids who, you know, their parents were going through divorce and making mm-hmm. sure they had a voice in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, So even though it seems like it was just like I woke up one day and decided, like, it sounds sort of silly, but like, no, I think there was something more behind it. And it was I wanted to help help kids in this process. Okay, so now now I was going to ask you this later, but this is a good segue. So do you feel like that that was the deciding factor in how what your areas of of focus are for your practice? How did you come to that decision? Sure. So it helped me narrow it down. So Mm -hmm. I won't I, I was telling a friend recently I will be extremely transparent. You know, I got to law school saying, I'm going to represent children. I'm going to be a public interest lawyer. It's going to be great. Very quickly into it, I realized, I don't know if I can pay off my law school loans and do all those mm-hmm. things, you know, being a public interest attorney. And we didn't have the same like loan debt forgiveness that exists today back when yeah. I went to school. Right. And I got caught up in it a little bit, like saying, oh, maybe I should work for a bigger firm. 
So when I was graduating law school and looking for a job, this was in 2005, it was also extremely hard to find a job, Mm -hmm. extremely hard. And, but I had narrowed it down to two areas of practice that I thought I would like tax being number one, because I like numbers. I've always liked numbers. I like crunching numbers. They're fun to me. I like the tax code. Actually, I would write in my cover letters, trying to get a job saying the tax code was like a Jane Austen novel, mm. um, where, like the commas and the semicolons and everything yeah. else there signals something else to us that I did not get a tax job. Uh, but I did get a family law job mm-hmm. and I, you know, like I said, whittled it down to those two subject areas. Areas. I was lucky enough to get a family law job in a small firm in Towson, Maryland, and that's how I began. Okay. At heart, you like to nerd out on that tax stuff, I guess. Okay. I, I have makes, those moments too. Makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. All right. So if you could go back in time, maybe give the younger you some advice, something you know now that you wish you knew when you started out, what, what do you think that might be? I don't know if it would be advice as much as like a high five that she's doing something right, which is mm-hmm. the trust instinct for whatever reason. And I don't know where this came from, but I was very good at trusting my instincts mm-hmm. from pretty much day one and standing up for myself and advocating for myself. There's one place I wish I did it a little bit more. And I had a funny situation happen to me. I'd say 18 months into my career as a lawyer and I was trusting my instincts and I was raising my hand saying, this isn't right. I don't like this. This isn't right. Um, it was about a, a case that I was involved in at the time. Okay. Okay. And um, my instincts were correct. And I guess I could have voted with my feet at that time and said, well, I'm out. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to really tell her and go back and saying, you're doing a really good job using your voice, continue to do so. If something feels not right in your gut, continue to trust that. Yeah, that first instinct, there's a lot of well, belief around that. And then some people don't put a lot of weight in that. And I don't know, I tend to be on the side with you where you should trust the person instinct and go with your gut. That's well said. I like that. Okay. So maybe uh, you, you pick the areas of your focus for your practice. Do you, do you have an ideal client that you like to work with? Maybe describe that. Sure. Well, I will tell you, and my website probably doesn't reflect it, and I need to update my website. I have shut down the spigot of litigation. I am mm-hmm. done litigating. I am not mm-hmm. taking on any more of those clients. I have one case left. May. May will be my last litigation case. I will still represent children because that's why I went to law school. So I'm still something in Maryland called a best interest attorney or a child mm-hmm. advocate, but I'm no longer representing moms, dads, husbands, wives, if the case is going to trial. Mm-hmm. So, but an ideal client now, my, my favorite way of practicing law is being the mediator. Okay. So as I, when I serve as mediator, you know, the ideal clients would be uh, two parties who still love one another in some ways, and they just want to achieve a fair resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes my parties don't love each other at all, and that's okay too. But again, they are looking to achieve a resolution. They are capable of making what I say business decisions. I think in family law, you know, we have a lot of emotional decisions and business mm-hmm. decisions, but they're both capable enough of making business decisions and seeing sometimes being done is better than perfect. So I can help them move on. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy those types of clients. I also really enjoy um, clients that are like fun and energetic. And it might be even like with a a postnup. I've been doing several mm-hmm. mediated postnups where the parties have been married for excellent X amount of time, but they want a postnup. They want to stay married and they want to be creative in how they draft that. And actually those are a lot of fun because they want to stay married. They're still happy and it's 
a way of ensuring their happiness 10 years down the line, like making some hard decisions now that might yeah. come into play 10 years later. Okay. So, any sort of mediation case, really. I like what you said there. Sometimes being done is better than being perfect. You can really get caught up in the minutia and focus on maybe one particular thing that is that is keeping you from being done just because you want to be perfect. And it blows the whole thing up. It really does. I'm sure you have experience with that. Um, okay, so maybe just you mentioned some things there. So maybe just um, on a high level, differentiate what litigation and mediation is. I mean, I know, but maybe for the listeners, um, what the big differences are there. So litigation is where, let's pretend wife comes to me and wife says, Wendy, I need a divorce and I need your help. Sometimes she might say something like, I want to take him for everything he's worth, or he's a total narcissist, or these are the the things we hear all the Mm -hmm. time. Or, you know, I'm really scared, you know, I'm really scared, he's going to run away with so and so I don't know what to do. I'm just getting back into the workforce, like, et cetera. And I need to then file on her behalf, a complaint for divorce. So in Maryland, I'd be filing the complaint for divorce, then we would have to use a service processor to then serve husband with the complaint, he files the answer. And then we're in litigation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what that okay. means in layman speak, a lot of lawyer bills, mm-hmm. a lot of paperwork, a lot of paperwork that go, we, it's called discovery. So it's interrogatories, mm-hmm. requests, production of documents. But what the clients will see is a lot of billable hours, a lot of billable hours, and they are paying their attorney thousands upon thousands of dollars to exchange this information, whether mm-hmm. it's documents or answers. Um, and then there'll be email, an uh, email barrage going back and forth, a letter campaign going back and forth. And in Maryland, it takes right now, probably on average, about two years from the date of filing your complaint for a divorce to actually having your trial in front of a judge. Mm. Some, some it takes longer. I mean, part of that's due to COVID. Yeah. Part of that's due to um, just the system's overburdened. And part of it's doing attorneys are really bad at time estimates. So we tell the court how long we think we'll need. And we're always wrong. We're, mm-hmm. we're always wrong. So then everything gets backed up. Okay. So it's messy. I, I call it the wild, wild west. Litigation is the wild, wild west until you actually have your court date, which, like I said, it could be about two years. Where mediation is different is mediation. It, I get an email. Usually see, like husband or wife reaches out to me. They're CCing each other. And they say, hey, Wendy, we would love. To mediate with you, we hear this is a good process. Um, can we do so? Sure. So I have them sign something called an agreement to mediate, and I do it either via or I do the mediations either via Zoom or in person. Sometimes people bring lawyers, sometimes they don't. I do it either way. But basically, we set an agenda at the beginning of mediation saying, okay, here's the topics we know we need to address. We know we want to talk about custody, we know we want to talk about support and how we're going to buy a marital property what we're going to do with the marital home. And we sit down and we tackle each issue and we go back and forth. And it's more like a group project, right? It's me, the mediator, asking questions. It's the parties coming to resolution with each other. Sometimes I just let them sit and talk and I just ask follow-up and clarification questions. Sometimes I need to do more of the pulling out of the questions to get to resolution. But usually my mediations last anywhere from one session of two hours, maybe four sessions of two hours. And so that's eight hours total and we have tackled every single issue and I keep a running list of all the issues that we have tackled and we have resolution on and I draft them in agreement so they can be done with the whole divorce process in months as opposed to years. Okay. All right. No, that's good. That's concise. And I think 
probably the people that have approached you that way that say they heard about it and want to do it, they see it through to the end, right? Because the the fear might be when you get into that thinking that you might want to do it because you heard maybe it was a faster way or less expensive. And then you realize, well, no, I don't agree on all this stuff. And maybe we do need to go in that direction where we have to litigate. Does that happen very often, like in your experience or, or not? I'd say my success rate on closing is pretty good. Okay. I have several that I just cannot get over the hump, no matter yeah. how hard I try. And I can think of them, but maybe two or three that just weren't able to settle. And I'll say sometimes litigation is appropriate. Right. I might not be appropriate for litigation, but sometimes yeah. it's powerful for someone to have a judge hear their story and have a mm-hmm. judge make the decision. They just right. can't. They just can't. So I say there's several cases I've not been able to close, but most most I can. Okay. I would think if they go into it wanting it or requesting it, it would be a pretty high probability um, for them to want to finish. What I've also found, my mediation clients who come to me without lawyers, they usually, those are the ones that pretty much always settle. And, you know, I I can't tell them, you know, I can't give them legal advice, Mm -hmm. but I can have my own brain in my head. And I most, I don't think I've ever written an unfair agreement. All Mm -hmm. of the agreements that I've done as a mediator have been too, luckily, you know, when I have attorneys on the line as well, is typically when it's harder for me to get to a settlement. Mm. Yeah. I, I've definitely seen that difference. That distinction. Well, they, you know, they got to justify the fees they're charging. So well, it's like, <laughs> they got to bring stuff up. You had to bring stuff up. Uh, but in fairness to them too, it's they so badly want to do a good job for their client. Yeah. And sometimes they care more about a certain issue than their client cares. And I think they want to do a good job because they care about their performance as a lawyer, as they should, you know, but sometimes they get in the way and they don't mean to. Like, it's a benevolent thing. They're not doing it to be a jerk, but sometimes yeah. if you could just get the attorney ego out of the way, the clients have much less ego about it and I can get them settled. Maybe they're trying to be perfect, Wendy, instead of done. Trying to be what? They're trying to be perfect instead of done. Yeah, yeah, probably, <laughs> probably. you know, because we are lawyers after all, you know, like we like things done a certain way. Yeah. So do you think are, are there some big misconceptions you think clients might have about what you do or maybe about the mediation process? I think they get confused about mediation sometimes. They sometimes think I am their lawyer. So I, I right. am clear about them one million times. I cannot give legal advice. I can tell you the law here in Maryland, but I cannot give legal advice. Mm-hmm. I cannot actually file the complaint or answer you know, for you. Um, sometimes the parties think that once the mediation is done and they have a signed agreement, um, that that's enough and they're divorced. So I'd say those are the misconceptions, but those are the most common ones I see. Okay. You mentioned this earlier. I mean, this is a big life transition. Some people I've even heard say that it's equal to grieving like the death of a person or a family member or something, although the other person's still alive in the case of the divorce. So it's really emotionally taxing. It's stressful. How, how have you found ways to be effective in helping clients de-stress the process? Uh, you personally. When I was litigating or as a mediator? As a mediator. So I think personality plays a big part of it. I mm. think how I open the mediation sessions. And even though they're formal, I'm still very much, I show up as me and Wendy. And I think I have an ability that I've honed in on over the years to make people feel comfortable, you know, to interject humor when I can, to be empathetic, to make sure I'm using, you know, my listening skills and making sure the parties are truly hearing one another. 
Now, some parties are going to not have that ability, right? And when they do not have that ability, my, like, nothing is funny. Like, they, everything is very tense. Mm -hmm. um, I try and proceed very delicately and very surgically and try and keep them on task as much as I can. The ones that aren't so delicate, you know, we, we try and have a little bit of fun. Like, like mm -hmm. it, it is often people are here like laughing. They're like, why does this feel fun? This is crazy. We feel like we should all like go have a drink after. I wasn't expecting to come to mediation and laugh. Um, I think just to keep it light, you know, and friends, I don't know if friendly is the right word, but. Um, yeah, well, cordial. Yeah, cordial. Yeah. Right. It doesn't have to be like stiff. None of us, none of us want to be here necessarily, but it is something that we've agreed to do. So let's treat each other with respect and get it, get it to the completion. Right. I think I do use humor in the beginning. So if like one mm -hmm. of the, I do a lot of my mediations via Zoom now. Mm -hmm. And so there's, I always explain the two cornerstones of mediation, which is it's voluntary. Like everyone's agreeing to be here and it's confidential. Um, with regard to the voluntary part, I say, you know, you don't have to continue the mediation process. If you need a break, you raise your hand, you let me know. But what I used to be able to say to people, this is my spiel, what I used to be able to say to people when they were here, you know, please don't leave. I don't want to like run chasing you out the door. But now that we're here on Zoom, I ask that before you hit that little red button on the right side of your screen, you raise your hand and you tell me you need a break. And that always makes people, you didn't laugh at that, but it's okay. But everyone always laughs at the not like leaving, you know, hitting the red button. Yeah. In the room. So that right. usually that makes people laugh or when I'm in a breakout session, I'm like, okay, go to your room. That makes people right. laugh. So just anywhere I can keep it lighter, but yeah. still smart, right? Still right. smart and intelligent. And we're talking about intelligent decisions. with mm -hmm. Okay. So I've noticed on your website, you talk about this focus of life after divorce. Mm -hmm. So why is that so important or, you know, kind of how do you define that and why, why have you made that an emphasis um, of your practice? Well, it first started happening accidentally. So I started practicing law in 05. In 2016, I accidentally became a health and wellness coach. So when that happened, basically every morning, the wee hours of the morning, 6 a.m., I was checking in with women how they were doing with their fitness and nutrition. And we had this um, Facebook like challenge group, accountability group. And for the first hour of every single day, I was pouring in and pouring in and coaching and coaching these women to lead healthy, fulfilling lives. And after about six months of me doing that, I realized that the way I talked to my clients changed drastically. Mm. So instead of me, a lot of attorneys, unfortunately, in the family law industry, beat their clients into submission. They beat on them, they yell at them, they berate them, because the attorney can see hey, this is a good settlement and they really want to berate or beat their client into the good settlement so the case can be over and everyone can move on. So my first step was really changing my language and changing how I treated clients and using more coaching language in terms of just being more affirmative, positive, and as a natural result, even though I was always goal-driven, my first boss would tell me the good thing about Wendy is she always asks clients their goals. Like I want to make sure my clients reach their, their goals for the divorce my coaching sort of started taking the goal for divorce even past the goal for divorce mm. and so i wouldn't even just ask the clients you know goals on divorce like how do we want to split up the marital assets what do we need for alimony custody etc it'd be and what is life going to be like later sort of like showing them there was light at the end of the tunnel there was this care out there things would be better and several of my favorite clients in the same time period were women going through a horrendous divorce and they kept saying to me things like, once they got on the other side, like, you were right. 
I feel so much better. Like, thank you so much. Cause I could reassure them that life would be better on the other side. And again, it just, it was the confidence I started to glean from the coaching business mm-hmm. spilled over into the law practice. So that's where I saw it happen. I just kept going with it and I still yeah. do it today. Right. There's a crossover there. Mm-hmm. All those things are interconnected. Yeah. They are. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about there, there's this broad term, which is collaborative law. Um, maybe you can just like briefly define that on like a 30,000 foot level. Sure. So collaborative law is another way to resolve your divorce dispute. Mm. So it's not mediation. It's not litigation. It is having collaboratively trained professionals. Like it's a, we have like a governing body, right? Mm. And we have to be collaboratively trained. And what I liken that to is each party has hired a collaboratively trained attorney. Then together, the attorneys and parties hire a coach, a collaboratively trained coach, and the five of us. And sometimes we also have a a financial person, too, who's a financial neutral to help us with the process. But the five of us or six of us basically sit down before COVID. It was around a table. Now they're via Zoom because it's just more efficient and effective. And I liken it to like if you were getting your MBA and you had a group project where you had to create a business or make sure the business was operating efficiently, it's the same thing, but for divorce. So where the the five of us sit around the table from day one, say, okay, what can we do for this family and make sure this family is running as efficiently as possible once the divorce is over. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. And that, that clearly kind of defines the differences between the three veins of that on how they work. So I'm curious then going forward, you sounds like you've gone through a lot of phases or changes with how you practice law and what you've chosen to do. You're now no longer doing any litigation. So what do you see as maybe the biggest opportunity for you in your practice going forward? The biggest opportunity in my practice is really growing my other business that I have right now. So my biggest opportunity is knowing when to say no and not okay. getting scared about my other business I have growing if it's not growing fast enough to not pick up the phone when the phone rings and says, Wendy, I really need you. Like, please be my litigator or please take on my son's case. I loved it when you were my attorney. Can you please take on their case? The biggest thing I have to do right now is no to say no, like, and have the confidence to say no, which has grown. That has grown a lot over the last two years as I've decided to turn off the spigot to litigation. Um, So where I see myself growing is my life coaching business and where I'm primarily life coach other attorneys, mostly females. I say mostly lawyer moms is my primarily. Also solos, a lot of people going solo who are Mm -hmm. are, are solo or a lot of managing partners of firms. That's what makes me happy right now. Um, So continuing to grow. So in an ideal world, my mediation practice has grown. So I always have two mediations a week at the same time, every day, every week. And people know these are our two slots with Wendy. And we have to grab one of those if we want to mediate with her. I have like one case where I represent a child and I just keep taking those, you know, so I still have some familiarity, you know, with our court system and I'm still mm-hmm. everybody and then really have grown the life coaching business. Okay. Awesome. And maybe on the flip side of that, Wendy, what do you see as the biggest maybe challenge or obstacle, something that you want to overcome or, or that you'd like to get past to move to the next level? I've gotten past so much in the last three years. I'm trying to think what else I need to get. Haven't we all? I've shattered so many like self-limiting beliefs, right? Like so Mm -hmm. many. So what do I want? And I like 
like an infinite amount of self-limiting beliefs I've literally shattered the last, I've said literally a lot, but the last three years. So what would I want to get past? I don't know. I want to give you a good answer. Like I would have had an answer three months ago, Mm -hmm. perhaps six months Mm -hmm. ago, or I know what my answer was five years ago. Well, maybe give me an example of something that you recently overcame, right? Right. So maybe in the last six months or the last year. Sure. Last year, you know, as when you're starting any business, like, what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not a good enough coach? What if I don't so, have what it takes? You know, the imposter if, syndrome is that what that is? I think is what, what it's imposter, called. Yeah, imposter yeah. syndrome, just like never feeling enough. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I had an opportunity recently where I had a coach, and he was great in certain ways. In certain ways, he was great, but in certain ways, he was not what he did not give to me what I know for sure. I give my clients. Mm. and that was a big aha for me being like I am the exact right person for the job I am doing and I do it better than anybody I know so mm. coaching with him who he and he's an amazing coach it just wasn't exactly what I needed or again like what I give my people yeah. and that gave me a huge boost of confidence like no my people or lawyer moms need a lawyer mom they need a lawyer mom who knows their life they know you know what she's worrying about they know all the different facets of her life and can really help coach her that's, I am the right person for that job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, and it sounds like you've kind of honed in on a niche there where mm-hmm. like in our business, we do a lot of niching from a acquisition standpoint of new clients. We figured out what we're really good at. And then we find those people that need that help. And then they are attracted to us because that is what we specialize in. So that's great. Yeah. It's kind of like a, specialist from a medical standpoint or, uh, you know, something like that. Okay. So I'm curious, you know, kind of wrapping up our conversation, if you could give us one piece of advice, maybe for ourselves on resolving conflict in our own lives, what do you think that that would be? Well, I do this with my, (laughs) I did this the other day with my kids. I have two kids, little kids, and I work on conflict resolution all the time with them. And they let me practice my skills all the time, (laughs) all the time. But I think the best possible thing any of us can do is do our best to like have an out-of-body experience, (laughs) like step ourselves outside of our feelings and thoughts and frustrations and emotions and facts that we hold on to as facts. And like out of body experience, step outside, step into the other person and say, how are they seeing it from their perspective? Like if I am this person and I know this person, I love this person, or I used to love this person and I know how they tick, how are they viewing the situation? Like, how are they viewing it from their own standpoint? And then you can be like, I got it and realize, okay, this isn't about me. Like Mm -hmm. their decision or what their thoughts and feelings are has usually nothing to do with me. It has, you know, how they're viewing the situation. That's how they're viewing it. And then once you have understanding from where the other person is coming from, even if they haven't treated you right, even if it doesn't make sense to you, but you understand how it makes sense to them, I find it's like, it brings it down from like level 10 stress to like maybe level four stress, just having that. Yeah. And then your response is probably different too. You know, once you've gone through that exercise. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's very well said. I like that. There's probably a big need in the world for more of that. (laughs) It always seems to do is get people worked up, but I guess that's good for you because you can teach them the technique and then that'll, that'll help them. 
I try. That's why I'm also trying so hard to teach my kids young, trying mm-hmm. so hard. So it doesn't always work. But. Yeah. Well, it also depends on the stage they're in and the age they are. And you got to go with what, you, what, what you're working with. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So if people want to learn more about you, contact you, what's the best way for them to do that, Wendy? Well, they can follow me on LinkedIn. So okay. S Meadows on LinkedIn or visit uh, either of my websites. So one is wendymeadowslaw.com. The other is wendysmeadows.com. And then they can learn more about me there. Okay. Awesome. Listen, I want to thank you for being here with me today. Uh, It's been a really good conversation. I'm very happy to spend the time with you. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in, watching the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we're hoping to raise the personal and financial wisdom of everyday people to another level, one show at a time. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Be well. Take care. Wendy, thanks again. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.